Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. This week, Frederick and I chat with Aline Tomescu, a postdoc researcher at VMware. and We talk all about the concept of stateless validators. But before we start in, I want to remind you about the next ZK Summit, which is coming up November 23rd and 24th. If you haven't yet bought your ticket, it's coming up fast, so I suggest you do so quickly. And actually, this isn't the only awesome event coming up. This week's sponsor, Parity Technologies, wanted me to let you know about another event you should definitely check out in the coming weeks. That is Polkadot Decoded, which is happening on December 3rd. This free online event is the Polkadot Community Conference and the first Polkadot gathering since the multi-chain network's launch and decentralization. It features a full program of talks exploring all aspects of Polkadot by the teams that are actually building the network's core technology, as well as those building ecosystem parachains, applications, and cross-network bridges. Get to learn the latest and future developments in the Polkadot ecosystem and connect with the community. You can catch the fireside chat with Polkadot founder Gavin Wood. You can learn about the state of DeFi on Polkadot and about Polkadot's Ethereum Bitcoin bridges with Snowfork and Interlay. You can dive into Polkadot's on-chain governance and treasury and more. You can check out the full program for Polkadot Decoded and register for free at decoded.polkadot.network. I've added the link in the show notes. So thank you again, Parity Technologies. Now here's our interview with Aline Temescu. This week, we have Aline Tomescu, a postdoc researcher at VMware, here with us to talk about the concept of stateless validators. Welcome, Aline. Thank you, Anna, and thank you, Frederick, for hosting me today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Welcome to the show. In this episode, we want to revisit this concept of like state, stateful, stateless, and we want to understand a little bit about why this is an architecture that's even being proposed, what the challenges are, and where we are at in the research. But I think before we kick that off, I'm sort of curious, you're a postdoc at VMware. What is the work that you're actually doing there? Is it related to this? Yep. So uh, I started at VMware Research in February 2020, right before the pandemic. I got uh -huh. one good month uh, <laughs> before <laughs> all of this fun stuff happened. And... As I started there, um, I just continued working on my previous MIT research. And at MIT, I worked on vector commitments, which is a type of authenticated data structure that takes a vector of n elements and represents it as a succinct commitment. Now, this thing is very useful for stateless validation because if you look at a cryptocurrency like Ethereum, the state in Ethereum is actually a vector. It's a vector that maps position i to the balance of user i and the public key of user i. So in a stateful validating system like the current Ethereum right now, uh, all the miners store this vector, this mapping from user i to their public key and balance, and the miners can check transactions against the state very easily and update the state very easily. And in the stateless counterpart of the system, what would happen is the miners would not store this vector, which is really large, it would be on the order of gigabytes, they would instead store this succinct commitment of the vector. And against this commitment of the vector, they can now verify transactions if these transactions are augmented with proofs for each position. So for example, if I have a transaction from user I sending money to user J, then I can include a proof for user I's balance in the transaction. Mm. And the miner can verify this proof against the vector commitment. Um, so that's kind of what I started doing at VMware Research as I arrived. The work you were doing at, at MIT, had that already put you in contact with like Ethereum and the cryptocurrency ecosystem? No, it's kind of funny how uh, I ended up uh, <laughs> uh, being in contact with the Ethereum folks. It was right after the pandemic started, I actually oh, got wow. sick. And I was very, you know, depressed. I'm like, oh, man, what am I doing? I'm sick. I haven't done any work. So I started writing this blog post about our previous vector commitment scheme. And the Ethereum folks uh, uh, apparently read it and found it potentially of, of interest. And we started uh, talking about that scheme. And then we started thinking about some other schemes. 
and we came up with this uh, so-called aggregatable subvector commitment scheme, which, uh, like I discussed earlier, can be used for stateless validation. Cool. So let's dig into the the topic at hand, which is um, stateless client stateless validation. But I think to to get there, we need to define something. So you talked about ve- vector commitments. We did a whole episode on Merkle trees, which is a type of vector commitment, mm. and uh, what Ethereum uses today. Um, so I, I'd be curious. Maybe first we just talk about you know what what is state exactly. Yes. Um, but then also what's the problem, right? Why we already have Merkle trees, why aren't they just enough? Like, why do we need to do anything at all? Perfect. And uh, by the way, if we're going to discuss what is state, we kind of have to split into two types of discussions, state for UTXO-based systems like Bitcoin and state for account-based systems like Ethereum. Uh, So that's my sort of complicated discussion a little bit. We can handle it, but just a heads up. I think it's relevant to define the case for both, though. And I think that hopefully gives a good idea of what what we're talking about as well when we talk about states. Yes, and in fact, uh, you need different data structures because the states are different. And some are easier and some are harder. So, yeah. So I think the question we're trying to answer is, how does validation work currently in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum? And how can it be improved in in some dimension. In in particular, how can it be improved via so-called statelessness? So what we're going to talk about is the current stateful validation of systems like Bitcoin and Ethereum. When you get a transaction in these systems, the miners rely on a bunch of data called state, these databases that are stored on disk, to check that the users transferring money from one another have enough money to transfer, and to also after update these balances, the new balances of the users. So we call, we refer to this uh, database as the state of the system. And whether you're talking about Bitcoin or, or Ethereum, you have different types of states. So for example, in Bitcoin, Bitcoin operates in this so-called UTXO model, where the state is a bunch of so-called coins. What is a coin? Well, a coin is an amount, comma, a public key, Hmm. uh, which means, hey, if you have the secret key corresponding to this public key, you are allowed to transfer this coin to somebody else and create a new UTXO or a bunch of other UTXOs that says uh, amount, new public key, amount, new public key, amount, new public key, and so on, such that all of these new amounts sum up to the original transferred amount. So this is the UTXO model. It's just a bunch of UTXOs. And then in systems like Ethereum, we have the account model, which is simpler to think about in my mind and also has some advantages for smart contracts validations. And the account model works as you map each user's public key to that user's balance. And this is what determines a dictionary. So a dictionary maps a public key to that user's balance. And that's the state of Ethereum. So we have these two types of systems, UTXO systems, account systems, and they all have their own types of states. And we understand now that when a transaction is validated, the miner goes, checks that the users have enough balance, and then update the state to reflect the new balance after the transfer. Mm. And the question is, can we do this without having the miners store this large amount of state? For example, could the miners succinctly represent the state as a digest or as a commitment and get proofs that users have enough balance with respect to this commitment of the state. And by verifying the proof, the miner can be sure the user that's transferring uh, uh, the amount of coins actually has those coins. Uh, And then after the proof is verified, the miner can update the state by updating the digest rather than the full database stored on disk. And that's kind of the core idea. One way that I feel like we've in the past discussed state, we, all, we mainly discussed it in the context of an account-based system. And what I always understood it as is it was like the snapshot of now. Like the history, the background isn't necessarily, it's, it's in there somewhere, but like it's what you have in the state is the current connection between, like you said, the public key and the balance. Good. I think, yes, and that's implicit in everything I've been saying, and perhaps that should be clarified. So the way, uh, and you touch upon a really good point, which is you kind of got the reverse of it. So it's not like you get the history from the state, but you do get the state from the history. 
Okay. If you start with the history of all <laughs> transactions, at the end, what you get is the balances of all users in the account model or in the UTXO model, you get the, the UTXOs of each public key. You know, how, how many mm-hmm. coins does each person, die? I have a bunch of UTXO, maybe each one has a different public key. Uh, so you get that after applying all transactions. So yes, I think that would be very useful to clarify. Uh, there's a history of transactions and then there's sort of a computation being done on these transactions, like each transaction is being applied to the null state initially, and the state mm-hmm. evolves over time, and it ends up being what? It ends up being a mapping from public key to coins associated with that public key. Whether it's UTXO or account, at a high level, that's what's happening. It's This is the amount of coins, and this is the public key that can spend those coins. And the way you authorize such a spending is by doing a digital signature with the secret key associated with the public key. One other distinction that I kind of want to make or or clarification is around the concept of like a stateless client, because we've heard the term stateless client, but as I kind of understand, it doesn't necessarily, in this conversation, we're going to be talking about stateless validation and stateless client can mean something else. So what is a stateless client? Yeah, so I suspect what people mean by stateless client are these thin clients that you can run on your mobile phone on devices that don't have enough storage to store the entire Bitcoin state. Um, So in systems like Bitcoin, you can already run a Bitcoin wallet, which is a thin client, which is a stateless client if you want. And you can send transactions and you can receive transactions and you can manage your Bitcoins there very easily. Now, I will say the same thing is possible in Ethereum, of course, because uh, Ethereum uses um, Merkle trees and each balance of each user has a path in that Merkle tree. And the next thing, the next point I want to make is that if you have a stateless validation system that allows miners to verify transactions statelessly, that immediately implies a stateless client or a thin client. Because what's a stateless client? Well, it's a subset of a validator. It just needs to validate its own transactions, broadly speaking. In this case, like a light client, is a light client a stateless client or? Yeah, so I mean, this is where I think I don't really know what Bitcoin's terminology is as well as I maybe should. (laughs) But in Ethereum world, when people talk about stateless clients, they really talk about making the blockchain stateless, like having stateless validation, having stateless miners in some way. Because it, otherwise you call it a light client, because that is like what you just described as a light client where you don't actually have any state, but you request state. Like if I want to know what, what this smart contract holds, I request that state with its accompanying Merkle proof from a full node. Um, and, and that's just like altruistic behavior on the full nodes to actually provide that. I don't know what people talk about in, in Bitcoin world, if they talk about stateless clients or thin clients or light clients or whatever, but Good. Um, that, that, that is a uh, confusion yes. that I have seen is, is like light clients, stateless clients, whatever. Um, but here we're going to talk about like the full picture of it, like actually doing it for miners. Okay, that's a very eye-opening for me because I, I, I think you're right, actually. The Ethereum folks have been using the stateless client terminology to mean stateless validation. And at, at the end of the day, it seems like here we're just talking about terminology. So when I think of a of, of client, I, I think of an end user running a software on their device. And from my perspective, a miner is not a client because they're not really an end user. Well, they are, but that's not what people think about. They're, they, they, they achieve their own goals. They mine coins, so they are some sort of user. But the end users of a cryptocurrency, in my mind, would be the people transferring money. Miners are sort of a facilitator for that goal, right? So in that sense, I think yeah. of, a, of a client as the stuff running on the wallets. And, and if you're going to tell me what is a stateless client, I'm going to say, well, it's a client that runs on your mobile phone and lets you manage your coins. Uh, it mm. seems that that previous yeah. terminology is not consistent with that. So that's good to clarify. Yeah, totally. So before we go into like even further into the stateless system, the stateless validation, I do want to touch on something you said just before, which is this idea of the history defines the state. But like, as I understand it, like the state also, because it has all of this history, it ends up being big or heavy. Like there's something about the current systems where even though it's it's sort of a snapshot, carries with it a lot of right I, I don't know what you call this is it storage data it's information stuff information mm-hmm. it's it's stored in these merkle trees which are meant to kind of compress that down 
but yet there's still, I guess, a lot that you have to download, a lot that you have to to have present in order to calculate this. Yes. I think it actually, I mean, this goes to, to what I was talking about with what is the problem actually, because it, I don't know, maybe it's my personal opinion, but I don't think storage is actually the problem. Like if you look mm-hmm. at the size of the Bitcoin state, mm-hmm. that's actually very small compared to the history. Yes. And so what we want to try to do is actually, well, there's a couple of things we want to do. And Eileen, <laughs> uh, maybe you can actually help us get into that. But part of it is computation. Part of it is, is actually not having to deal with that history, and like avoiding the history by going stateless, because then you don't need the history to rebuild the state all the time. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Eileen, what, what would you say is like the main problem that we're trying to, to solve by introducing stateless validators? Okay, good, good. So that really touches on, on the core issue. And, and I'm not sure whose question to answer. Uh, so I'm going to just answer <laughs> think, the, la- the last question. Is good. <laughs> good. So, so what problem does stateless validation pretend to solve? And uh, it, it depends on who you ask. In my mind, the key advantage of stateless validation is that when you want to scale cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, you usually think of scaling them by sharding the cryptocurrency. And when you shard the cryptocurrency, what you do is you split up the state into, let's say, a bunch of so-called shards. And when you do that, each shard has its own set of validators. And as a result, you lessen the security of the system when you split up the validators among the shards. Because if you compromise one shard, it's much easier to compromise one shard because it has N over the number of shards validators Hmm. if you had originally N validators, right? So now what you want to do to deal with that is you want to switch validators between shards periodically with some frequency. But in order to do that, when a validator switches, it has to download the state of the shard it switches to. So now we can immediately see how the size of the state becomes problematic because it affects the speed at which validators can switch shards and it lessens the security of a sharded consensus protocol. Is this even the case in like the ETH2 setup where, yes, it's sharded, but there is sort of this real, what do they call beacon chain? Yeah, the beacon chain is just responsible for, for doing that shifting of validators around, right? So the same problem exists still. Mm -hmm. That's actually a very good point, though. I haven't really thought of that point to be able to switch validators more often. When we've talked about stateless clients or stateless validation in the past, we've approached it from looking at a full node. A full node has two modes that it can operate in. Either it's syncing or it's synced and keeping up with the network Mm -hmm. and like validating blocks. Mm -hmm. When it's syncing, Syncing in Ethereum, if you just normal sync an Ethereum node, it takes, I don't know how long anymore, weeks, something like that, right? Um, What is happening then is you're downloading all the transactions and re-executing everything. So every transaction, you're reading something from your hard drive, doing some computation, writing something new to your hard drive. And you keep doing that for millions of transactions in a row, and that's why it takes weeks to do. So if we can just say, okay, we're going to have a stateless client, you don't need to do any of that, right? You just need to sync the header chain, which is really fast. You get the Merkle root, and then you get to say, here's the correct state for this Merkle root, and or like here's you know a correct transaction, whatever, right? The other problem is for miners. So in the second mode where you have synced and you're now operating, what a miner does is downloads all of or they have all of the transactions in a in a mempool and then they construct a block and execute that and then you know try to do that as fast as possible so they can start mining on top of it and currently it takes like 200 milliseconds or something to create a block to mine on and there's a scaling problem in that too that you don't want this time to be too long because then it takes away from the mining time and therefore like lessens the security Mm -hmm. to some degree but the question there that I have is, if stateless mining is to address this, then getting the proofs and validating the proofs has to be faster yes. than one disk read and one disk write and the computation in between, right? Yes. And it's sort of up in the air to me if that is actually faster or not. Oh, yes. It's- but then the third point that you just brought up of 
actually being able to both sync quickly and like stay up to date with uh, the chain. And because you're hopping chains all the time, this now becomes exponentially much more important. And there's two things I want to touch upon from what you said. The first thing was you said that to sync in Ethereum, you have to download the history of transactions, execute them and get the state. But I suppose that's the slowest way to sync in Ethereum because the faster way yeah. would be you get the latest Merkle root and you download the state directly and you don't care about the transactions. Yeah. And that's what we call warp sync. Yeah. Right. but And I don't see a fundamental reason why you would ever want to do the slow sync. If you're willing to buy that the consensus in Ethereum is secure, then you can download yeah. you know, the Merkle root from, let's say, two days ago. If you want to have more security, you download the state, which is going to be faster. And then you apply the new transactions from the last two days. So that would be a faster way to sync Ethereum. But note that you still have to download the state in Ethereum, which when you account for smart contracts, it's uh, my understanding is that it's on the order of 100 gigabytes. The state, not the transactions. No, the state is more like, well... hmm. When you account for smart contracts. I don't know. It was was a year since I last checked. (laughs) Uh, A year ago, it was more like 15 gigs. Mm. So I, I doubt it's up to 100, but it's still large. It's still like a sizable download that is mm. uh, problematic for most people. Mm. Okay. So all I'm trying to say is that there are faster ways to sync in Ethereum right now. And those ways leverage authenticated data structures like Merkle trees, which are just an example of authenticated dictionaries. And with stateless validation, you can further improve that sync time because now you no longer have to download the state because the validation never actually needs the state. So you want to add a new peer-to-peer node to Ethereum, just spawn it up. It downloads a single 32-byte commitment of the state, and it starts validating without spending time downloading gigabytes of data. So, so stateless validation or stateless mining, as you referred to it, could help with that. And the second point you made about the computation uh, speed of validating statelessly versus the computation speed of validating statefully by going to, to disk, that's really the key open problem in this space in the sense that nobody has spent time to implement these systems and look at the trade-offs. And I would love to work on this in the future because, you know, I have, for example, Itai Avram, one of my collaborators. Also been on the show. (laughs) Yes, and has been on the show before. (laughs) So given that I love working on authenticated data structures and Itai loves working on consensus, we could actually potentially uh, work on this together in the future and explore the trade-offs better. But nobody has so far. And Frederick, you bring up a good point. Is validating statelessly slower than going to disk? And it may as well be. But even so, it's not clear because of the point that you brought up that it's going to be sufficiently slow not to give you advantages when you shard things. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is it might actually be slower than what exists today. That is like the state plus Merkle trees. But once you introduce sharding, it potentially could speed it up. Is it actually about speed or does it become less complicated? Um, I think it's just about scaling the sharded consensus. So it's about speed. Um, okay. And yes, that may well be true, what, what you're saying. And that's really what the research uh, community and that's probably what the Ethereum team is already working on finding out. Something that comes up again and again when talking about stateless, client stateless validation, though, is data availability. Mm. Who actually distributes this state? If I want to send some tokens to someone or interact with a smart contract, I need to know what that is. I need to download some state from somewhere so that mm. I can interact with that state. Mm. So how do I do that? Good, good. So there's a few ways I want to answer this question. If you just consider payment-only cryptocurrencies, there's less of a data availability problem there because each user stores its balance and it's proof for its balance. So the state is perfectly distributed amongst the users themselves, and users have incentive to store this constant size of information. And the other data availability problem that arises in payment-only cryptocurrencies would be that, well, you might want to store the history of transactions over time somewhere. And, you know, potentially we need an incentive mechanism for this. I'm not as concerned about it. There's no incentive mechanism to store this data in Bitcoin right now, and people seem to store it anyway. But the problem does get worse when you switch to data availability for smart contracts. Totally. But actually, before we get there, I also want to say that in payment-only cryptocurrencies that are statelessly validated, you also have the problem that users have to keep these proofs updated all the time. 
And users would ideally not like to do that because for them to do that, they have to keep up with every new transaction in the system and apply it to their proof and update their proof. So they have to do a lot of work and a lot of communication. And to solve that problem, you have to introduce these proof-serving nodes that actually maintain all proofs for all users or a subset of proofs for a subset of the users. And those, again, have a data availability problem, like why should these nodes do the computation? And there's a very interesting incentivization question for that. And we have some work on that, actually, that hopefully we'll release soon on how to incentivize these proof-serving nodes properly. I also think of that as a data availability problem. Now, switching to smart contracts, so in smart contracts, when you think about validating statelessly, the question is, I have a smart contract A, who stores the state for that smart contract A? And one simple answer is to say, well, a smart contract is deployed by a person and it's that person's responsibility to store the state of that smart contract. Now that's not very appealing because that kind of takes away from the decentralized nature of a cryptocurrency, right? So again, I, I think this is yet to be explored in future work because I think we only have one or two papers on stateless validation for cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the point proof paper by Gorbunov et al, who explores stateless validation uh, with smart contracts. And they have a very nice vector commitment scheme for that. And there's a new ePrint out by uh, Shashank Agrawal and Srini Raghuraman on authenticated dictionaries from RSA that are very amenable to stateless validation. But none of these two papers explore sort of the intricacies of who stores the contract state and how do you incentivize yeah. that storage. And I know the Ethereum folks have been doing a lot of work on this. If you go on Eth Research, you can see a lot of fraud proofs, availability mm -hmm. proofs, and so on. And I don't have a satisfying answer to this problem yet. I think it's something that we have to look at in future work. And so far, we've barely started to come up with the right authenticated data structures for the problem. And the next step will be, like we discussed earlier, making sure that this makes sense in an implementation and then incentivizing the distribution of the data. But yet they're all intertwined because if you don't have one, you can't get the other. So it's just people end up working on what they want to work on. <laughs> Leading into what you talked about with authenticated data structures, I want to lead into it with another problem, which I think we can solve. <laughs> uh, that is, when talking about stateless mining or validation, whatever we call it, <laughs> uh, on Ethereum, ETH1 specifically, when we start digging into these schemes, we find that if you could have a stateless system on ETH1, where you only provide the miner with the Merkle root and then a Merkle proof of your transactions, and they can just validate that proof and move on with their lives. They mm -hmm. don't actually have to keep this. They don't have to do any of this work. The problem with that is it would require an insane amount of bandwidth because these proofs are so large. Yes. So how do we solve that problem? Well, that's the great question. That's exactly what we're doing, Frederick. <laughs> what we're doing is we're coming up with better Merkle trees where the proofs are smaller. And it's not just that they're smaller, they can also be aggregated. So when you have a bunch of transactions, each one with their proofs in them, you can take all of these proofs, which cause most of the overhead, and compress them into a single one. So we did work on this with the Ethereum folks themselves. That's our ASVC paper from SCN20, where we build a Merkle tree which is, you know, it's not a Merkle tree, but you can think of it as a Merkle tree in the sense that it commits to a vector, but it has this nice property that if you have a bunch of proofs, you can aggregate them into a single one. And, and most recently, we built a stronger primitive called an authenticated dictionary, which again, you can think of it as a Merkle tree. And if you have a bunch of proofs, you can compress them into a single proof. And not only that, if you have a bunch of proofs with respect to different Merkle trees, perhaps you have a different Merkle tree for each smart contract's memory, you can take all of these proofs that are each for the execution of a different smart contract and compress them into a single proof. And th this kind of, I guess, nicely gets us to talk about the difference between a vector commitment and an authenticated dictionary. So what's the difference? I think it would be a good point to clarify that. So in a vector commitment scheme, the data, the state, or whatever you want to call it, that you're authenticating is a vector. It's a list of n positions that has a value vi at position i. And this can be sufficient for things like uh, representing the balances of all users in the system. If you have n users and you represent that as a vector, but it's not as good for representing smart contracts because in a smart contract, in Ethereum at least, you have memory addresses from 
zero up to two to the power of 256. And you can't have vectors that are this large because by the time you finish creating these vectors, the universe is going to die. So you need a different authenticated data structure for that. And that's what the dictionary is for. A dictionary maps a key from a really large universe. So a key of 256 bits, for example, just like the memory locations in the Ethereum smart contracts to its value. So to the value stored at the memory location. And you need now an authenticated dictionary in order to commit to the memory of such a smart contract with a really sparse uh, memory with indices from 0 to 2 to the 256. And it turns out that obtaining uh, vector commitments and authenticated dictionaries are authenticated dictionaries are a bit more difficult. There are sort of constructions that use vector commitments to get authenticated dictionaries, but they lose something in the process. So coming up with authenticated dictionaries that are inherently super efficient is a bit harder than coming up with a vector commitment, it seems, as far as we can tell. That's not the case in Merkle trees, though. If you use Merkle trees as your authentication data structure, let's say, whether you're committing to a vector or a dictionary, you can organize the Merkle tree very easily to get both efficiently. But when you start switching to different primitives like bilinear accumulators or constant size polynomial commitments or you know hidden order groups uh, it's not as easy to organize the data structure to get either a vector or a dictionary you have to do crazier tricks uh, and it gets more difficult and that's what's exciting actually about this field is what kind of clever mathematical things can you come up with that allows you to represent a vector using these more fancy cryptographic primitives not merkle trees Can I ask you a question that might even be a little bit of a step back from this? Yes. Like we did an episode with Ben Fish on accumulators Mm -hmm. generally. And I'm just curious, like when you talk about an authenticated dictionary, Uh is that instead of an accumulator or is it using, is it like mapping throughout an accumulator? Oh, this is this. I love this question, actually. And the reason I love it is because we actually haven't defined what an accumulator is. So we talked about vectors and vector commitments. We talked about dictionaries and authenticated dictionaries. If we talk about sets, then we're talking about accumulators. So an accumulator is just a commitment to a set, just like a vector commitment is a commitment to a vector. And an authenticated dictionary is a commitment to a dictionary, right? So accumulators are useful for committing to sets. Now, why might you want to do that? Well, it turns out in systems like Bitcoin, the state is actually just a set. It's the set of all UTXOs. And when you do a transactions, you remove an UTXO from the set and you add some new ones. Um, And in order to actually turn Bitcoin to be stateless, all you need is an accumulator that has some some properties. Like given the accumulator commitment, the commitment, the small thing, not the full set, can you remove something from it and can you add something to it, right? And it turns out you can do these things. And that's what Ben Fish's paper is about. Mm -hmm. Well, I think in that interview, though, we also talked about Merkle trees falling into the category of accumulators. That is the case, right? Of course. So that's why Merkle trees are so interesting because you can use them to commit to a set, you can use them to commit to a vector or to a dictionary or to all sorts of other fancy things. So so Merkle trees are much more powerful than some might realize. And they've been around since 87, I want to say. Uh, And you can do all sorts of crazy stuff with Merkle trees and organize them in all sorts of fancy ways. I really like the way you define those three things. And you were saying like Merkle trees are almost like the technique in these. Yes. Yes, that's really important to yeah. understand. There's a researcher at the MIT Digital Currency Initiative, uh, Tage, some of you know him, and he has this really beautiful paper on building accumulators from Merkle trees that are much more efficient than what you might normally come up with. And again, he comes up with a way to commit to a set using Merkle trees, but his construction has this advantage that you can remove and add things to the set very easily, unlike other Merkle-based constructions, which have more overheads. And I think that's the perfect example of the really amazing power of Merkle trees and, and what you can do with them. Now, and actually, that scheme is really good for Bitcoin stateless validation. It's unclear whether you might want to use actual RSA accumulators or bilinear accumulators instead of Tage's scheme, because Tage's scheme is, has very small proofs in practice, and it's also so efficient to execute by the miners, which might uh, make up for the fact that the proofs will be slightly larger than a bilinear accumulator says. But, but yes, uh, coming up to the Merkle tree point, Merkleizing something is just a technique. You know, there's people that Merkleize code executions. What's that? What's that about, right? It's, and I'm, I, we've just talked about three different kinds of data or sets, uh, dictionaries, and vector commitments, which are 
useful for turning stateful systems like Bitcoin and Ethereum into stateless ones. And there's these all, all of these things are related. So for example, we have a paper on using accumulators, so commitments to sets, to get dictionaries, to get authenticated dictionaries from just an accumulator. And mostly the use of the accumulator is black box in the sense that we don't need to change much about the accumulator. So, so there are interesting connections and there's some connections, like I said earlier, between vector commitments and dictionaries. You can get one from the other. So for example, Bankrat Feist at Ethereum Research has a post there on building, he calls them hash maps. In other words, authenticated dictionaries, map dictionaries, same thing, mm -hmm. where he uses a vector commitment in a pretty much black box way to get an authenticated dictionary, which can be used for stateless validation. So yes, it's just a beautiful space, uh, I think. It's fascinating how these uh, all these different terms come up because it it seems like such a mix of math and computer science where like it's vector commitment versus accumulator versus authenticated. Well, you could just call an accumulator an authenticated set and a ve vector commitment an authenticated vector. Yes. And I guess that's why like in computer science now it's talked more about like authenticated data yes. structures generally. <laughs> Instead of like all of these individual things, yeah. Broadly speaking, this yes, good. So you touch upon a great point. I'm actually having a lot of trouble tagging my papers in my bibliography <laughs> with the right tags. So should I use accumulator here? Is this under authenticated data structures or not? Is it, should I call it a set instead of an accumulator? I don't know, but you're right. It's, it's, uh, that's what we're best at, right? Coming up with the same name for different things and then publishing a new paper. <laughs> Uh, be wary, be wary of that uh, researcher technique. <laughs> I have a question sort of following up on the Merkle. Like we just talked about sort of the glorious Merkle trees, but there are also like variations or evolutions. Like there are other things you could use. In your modeling, are you also looking at other techniques? For stateless validation? Yeah. Beyond authenticated data structures. You sort of mentioned that Merkle trees do exist in there, but I mean, there were these ideas of like Merkle mountains. I don't know if that just falls under the accumulator side, but are there other techniques like Merkle trees, but that are not Merkle trees that you're actually experimenting with in there? So Merkle mountain range is a Merkle tree technique. There's nothing inherently different about it. I see. It just sort of falls under that category. Yeah. In my mind, I mean, I don't see a need to differentiate between that. So what you're doing is you have a bunch of leaves and you Merkleize them up, but you stop and the, you stop at some point and you get multiple trees. When do you stop? You stop when, well, you really, you Merkleize up in powers of two. You get the biggest power of two uh, of your data and you Merkleize up and then you move on to the next power of two. In terms of other techniques, I guess that's what we're trying to do, right? So we're coming up with uh, techniques that use algebraic groups rather than Merkle trees. Got so it. we have prime order algebraic groups, which gives give rise to polynomial commitments, which give rise to vector commitments. Then we have hidden order groups, which give rise to RSA accumulators, which give rise to dictionaries, or they give rise to vector commitments. Uh, for example, the Catalano-Fiore vector commitment, which can be turned in a non-black box way into a dictionary which is what we show in our in our latest work and also what the, the paper I mentioned earlier by uh, Shashanka Grawal and Shinira Guraman also shows. Mm. So yes, there's a bunch of alternatives to Merkle techniques and actually that's what makes the space exciting because these alternatives, they give you much more power. So with hidden order groups, for example, you can aggregate proofs, which you cannot do in Merkle trees efficiently. Mm -hmm. In principle, you can do it in Merkle trees with snarks and maybe you can replace the hash function with something that's more snark friendly and you can get some amount of efficiency, but good luck beating the efficiency of the RSA-based aggregation, for example. With hidden order groups, you also get incremental aggregation, which means that as you have n proofs that you've aggregated into a single one, if you get an n plus one proof, you can incrementally accumulated in the previous aggregation rather than restarting the aggregation from scratch. And there's all sorts of other crazy properties that these things give you that Merkle trees would never do. Updatability is one of them, for example. In a Merkle tree, if you want to update the proof for position i, let's say it's a vector commitment built using a Merkle tree. So you have a position i and a proof for position i, in other words, a Merkle proof. And position j changed by some delta, and now you want to update your proof for position i. You can't just update it. You also need, as auxiliary information, you need the proof for the position J that changed. This is kind of annoying in the stateless setting because if I'm user I and I'm sending money to user J, I need to include user J's proof in the transaction for the miners to update the state and for other users to update their proof. So uh, with these techniques, you can, you can do that without this auxiliary information. You can just update the digest. 
This is actually so helpful to understand a little bit more. At least for me, it's it's helping me to really position the exact research that you're doing, or at least mm. part of it. I didn't fully get that. I didn't get that from our early, just like earlier in this conversation, that it's actually like it is the replacement of the Merkle tree that these authenticated yes. dictionaries could provide. Yes, and the stateless validation requires something more efficient or some technique that is different from the Merkle trees, but has some of the same properties or outcomes. Yeah, so I would say, I just gave a talk about this yesterday, actually, that the simplest way to understand why we need to move beyond Merkle trees is to realize that when you move to stateless validation, there's a few key operations that you must be able to do. You must be able to update the commitment of the state, whether it's a vector commitment, an accumulator, or a authenticated dictionary, you have to update on the miner side because the miner gets new transactions, has an old commitment, needs to compute the new commitment to reflect those new transactions. So with Merkle trees, you need that auxiliary information earlier that I that I mentioned earlier. You need those proofs for the changed positions in the mm-hmm. state, for example. And if you move beyond Merkle trees, you realize you can come up with constructions that you don't need that auxiliary information. And as a result, you decrease transaction size and you decrease block size too, because that auxiliary information no longer needs to be included in the blocks. And another key thing that Merkle trees don't give you, and I mentioned before, and is necessary in stateless validation is proof aggregation. Because once again, we have the miner, he has a commitment of the state and he gets proofs in a bunch of different transactions. But now this miner has to create a block after validating those transactions and verifying those proofs. And he would normally need to re-include those proofs in the block. Why? Because other miners need to validate this proposed block, so they need the proofs. So it's really important for the miner to be able to aggregate these proofs into a single thing so that the block size stays small. Imagine having a thousand transactions in a block and also having to include a thousand proofs versus including a single proof. So proof aggregation is very important. Now, can you get proof aggregation from Merkle trees? Yes, you can. Is it efficient? Not so much. Can we come up with better data structures that have more efficient proof aggregation? Turns out we can. They have other disadvantages like we touched upon earlier. The validation of the proofs might be slower than than validating from the state on disk. Nonetheless, the sharded consensus that it's made possible by these newer data structures could still be faster than than doing stateful validation and doing expensive state transfer in the sharded consensus protocol. And this is future work to be done. This is actually suggested that I we ask this from Itai. I spoke to him about the fact that we're having you mm-hmm. on. He said we should ask you like how do polynomial commitments relate to the work? And you did mention them mm-hmm. when you were defining some of the different mm-hmm. things. But mm-hmm. are polynomial commitments, is that part of the tool set that you're using for the authenticated dictionaries? Are they related somehow? Yes, the answer is the answer is they are definitely part of the tool set. I can point you to three papers, one by Chepurnoi, Papamantu, and Jang, who use multivariate polynomial commitments to build vector commitments. And we will put those in the show notes for our listeners because so that they can also Great. check those out. I um, think. Another paper is our paper on authenticated multipoint evaluation trees, which use univariate polynomial commitments to get vector commitments. Then we have our ASVC paper, which also use univariate polynomial commitments to get vector commitments. They're absolutely relevant. The question is why? And to answer that question, I'm trying to think if there is a, a an acceptable answer, like a useful answer to that question without people understanding what a polynomial is. Yeah. Because if you don't understand what a polynomial is, how can you understand what a polynomial commitment is? So let's, I guess, first talk about what is a polynomial, broadly speaking. And then we can talk about what a commitment to this polynomial is and how that lets you come up with a vector commitment, for example, or an authenticated dictionary. Sure. Does that sound good? So we can really quickly define a polynomial as a function f that takes some input x and outputs some value y. So f of x is equal to y for a bunch of different x's. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that this function f is not just any function. It has to have a particular form. So for example, polynomials that you might have seen in the past are f of x is equal to x plus 3. Another one you might have seen is is equal to x squared plus Mm -hmm. x plus 5. In general, you have f of x being equal to coefficient ci times x to the i plus coefficient i minus 1 times x to the i minus 1 for a bunch of different coefficients ci that you pick. And that's a polynomial. It's just a mathematical object. It's a function. Why is it useful? 
Well, you could, in principle, come up with a way to represent a vector as a polynomial. If you could, for example, come up with a polynomial f such that f of i is equal to the ith position of the vector, let's call this vi, mm-hmm. I can maybe come up with a way to compute the polynomial f such that f of i is equal to vi. That seems plausible mathematically. It turns out there is a way. It's called Lagrange interpolation. And you get a polynomial that has n of those coefficients, ci, if you have n positions in the vector. I might be off by plus or minus one. You know, that's acceptable. I'm having, by the way, flashbacks. I'm having flashbacks to our interview with Ariel Gavizon because he mm. for sure talked through mm. exactly this. I'm like, Good. I remember this all now. So, cool. so I might be off by plus yeah. or minus one, but that's acceptable for computer scientists. And uh, you have a you have this polynomial now. It has n coefficients, so it's just a list of n numbers. That's what the polynomial is. And you can also represent it as you know x to the four plus x to the three plus whatever the representation follows immediately from this list of coefficients. And now I have this polynomial f of i is equal to vi. It represents the vector unambiguously. If I put a vector position in f, it gives me the value of the vector. But uh, I haven't gotten anywhere. Like what I need to do is to come up with a succinct representation of this polynomial, which would give me a succinct representation of the vector. And then I need to come up with a way to prove that position i has vi there relative to this succinct representation. So if I give you the commitment to the polynomial, the succinct representation, how do I convince you that i has value vi? I have to give you some sort of proof that you can verify with respect to to the representation. And that's what a polynomial commitment scheme does. It, It defines two things. It defines a way to compute this commitment of the polynomial, and it defines a way to prove that the polynomial has a certain value at a certain input, so that f of i is equal to vi. And that naturally gives you a vector commitment. How? You take the vector, you do Lagrange interpolation, you get an f polynomial of of n coefficients, then you commit to it using the polynomial commitment scheme, and then you pre-compute all proofs for all n positions in the vector by computing each individual proof for f of i is equal to vi with respect to the polynomial commitment. So you've, you've defined the polynomial commitment is that the core of what you are doing in order to, I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, but map those connections between the key and the balance? Like going back to that original concept of the, like what you're working on with the authenticated dictionary, like how do those two things relate? Well, uh, good. So I can use a polynomial commitment to get a vector commitment. And earlier on, I claimed that if you look at a cryptocurrency like Ethereum, the state of Ethereum can be represented as a vector because I can take each user i, a user is a number from one to n, let's say, and I can map that user i to its public key and its balance. And that defines my vector. And then I can commit to this vector using the polynomial commitment scheme and pre-compute all proofs for each user. And that is what our ASVC paper does joint work with the Ethereum folks. And I have to say, this is not a new idea. This is an idea that's been around since 2010. But what our paper shows is that you can also update this vector commitment very efficiently. You can have a way to update the digest efficiently. And most importantly, something that wasn't well known before, and we show is you can update the proofs for position i after position j changed efficiently without needing this auxiliary information. And you can also aggregate proofs for a bunch of different positions i. What are the proofs themselves? Like you keep mentioning proofs, proofs, mm. proofs, and we know there's zero proofs, knowledge proofs, proofs, but like what kind of proof mm. are these? Good. So I, you know, I could go. Uh, uh, I would love. Is to that a whole? Is that a whole a hour? Of excruciating <laughs> detail. Uh, Maybe on the highest. What level. are the proofs? <laughs> so th- the highest level I can give you is that the proofs are actually polynomial commitments themselves. Oh. So a proof for the evaluation of f of i being vi is just a commitment to another polynomial, and I can actually tell you what this polynomial is. So I have my f polynomial that represents the vector. Imagine I divide this polynomial by x minus i, which is another polynomial. Now, how do you do this division? You know, that's like you've learned that in 
one through eighth grade, but you forgot it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's fine. We all forget it because we don't use it. It's normal. Uh, but there's a way to do this division and it gives you a quotient and a remainder. Just like when you divide five by two, you get quotient two and remainder one. When you divide F by X minus I, you get some quotient polynomial and some remainder polynomial. The remainder, it turns out, it's actually the value F of I. It's actually that. And the quotient is some polynomial of degree N minus one. And I'm actually off by one, I now realize. So uh, the degree the degree of f is n minus one and okay. the quotient is of degree n minus two. So you get this other polynomial, let's call it q, quotient polynomial, and now you commit to this polynomial and that's the proof for a position uh. i. And this is beautifully explained in a lot of different papers. I think one way, one paper that explains it clearly is the Kate's Averucha Goldberg polynomial commitment paper, KZG10. And all papers that sort of build upon this usually explain this clearly. Um, and you can also see my blog post about how this works. I have some blog posts on my website about KZG itself, the polynomial commitment scheme, and about how we use it to build ASVCs, for example. Uh, so I hope that kind of so cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, clarifies the mystery open something a bit. For me, at least. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, kind of a left field question, but on theme for the podcast is, have you looked at zero knowledge proofs and specifically in a stateless validation system, it, it is a kind of an obvious thing that instead of just sending a transaction, you send a transaction and the proof that it's correct. Yes, you could do that. I mean, that's what, actually, let me just say that that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, that's what yeah. you're doing. Even in F1, <laughs> you're sending a proof that the transaction is valid. It's a Merkle proof and the miner has to validate it. Yeah. Zero knowledge has nothing to do with it. If you think about it, why does it need to be zero knowledge? Who cares? There's no need to hide anything so far in F1 and in F2. Like if you're talking about Zcash, then you can talk about zero knowledge yeah. when you actually want to add things. But actually what you want is you just want the proof. Is it a proof of knowledge? Mm, not really. Mm, not really. It's just a proof. So it's not even a snark. It's just a proof. Yeah. The reason I ask is uh, it usually comes up in the context of talking about zero knowledge proofs as a compression mechanism where if you have a snark, it's actually really tiny and especially compared to a Merkle proof, which is massive. So that's mm -hmm. like, as you have worked on your stuff, have, have you compared it to, you know, what, what if we used a snark? What are the differences in size? And Good. Everything? Good. So our ASVC proofs are just 32 bytes. Oh, wow. So much smaller than a snark. I see. Um, and I think that that should basically fully cover the question. So you could do it with snarks in principle because you could have the data and you could prove with a snark that this is one of the elements in the data and the data could be anything, a set, a dictionary, a vector, like we talked before. But why do all of that stuff when we have better ways, uh, uh, more efficient to compute all proofs, for example, mm. using uh, vector commitments, using uh, polynomial commitments as an underlying building block? Yeah. I just wonder, I mean, Aline, I don't know if you're familiar with this system, but it, it sort of reminds me, it makes me think a little bit more about like the CODA, what used to be CODA, what is now MINA. Mm -hmm. Like they're also a proof of stake system. They also use, they do use like recursive snarks, but I right. don't know about their validation part. Mm -hmm. Do you kind of mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, I don't know yeah. if how yes, they're... Yes, they do use snarks uh, for, for stateless validation, but... Block validators do not store the full state in the system, but block proposers who propose and create new blocks have to. So yeah. imagine the validator role. Usually the proposer and the validator role can be split up in Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's kind of the same entity doing both. Yeah. Uh, I guess in Coda, it's the same entity. It's different entities. So there's one entity who just validates block and there's other entities who propose blocks. And those entities have to store the state to propose blocks because they have to build these snarks the reason about the state, roughly speaking. Yeah. We should call them, they've changed their name, they're Minna, so we should mention that, actually. They're Minna, okay. Yes. <laughs> they're called Minna. They so had a name change. This uh, is in, in stark contrast to, to, to stateless validation, where even the proposers themselves don't store the state. This is why I mentioned earlier that you need to be able to update the digest without auxiliary information, because the updated digest will be in the new proposed block. And you need to include proofs for all the transactions in the new block and aggregate those proofs. And you can do all of this statelessly, although in MINA, uh, you cannot do this without state, it seems. Uh, but it doesn't, maybe it's not inherent. Maybe there's a way to do it in MINA as well uh, with, with recursive snarks. 
Yeah, it seems like being able to update these proofs is really the the key because otherwise, uh, yeah, you, like having to recompute that whole list of proofs for every user of a chain would be massive. Like it just wouldn't work. Yes. Uh, I mean, assuming that we get the systems to this kind of scale that we want. Um, yes. So yeah, that, yes. that does seem like the key. I completely agree. And this kind of touches upon some differences uh, in current, let's focus on vector commitments construction. So there are vector commitments like Merkle trees, which have lock sized proofs, which means that when something changes, you update a path in the tree and all other proofs are implicitly updated. So you can do very quick updates of all proofs. If you are, for example, a proof serving node in a stateless cryptocurrency managing this Merkle tree. But Merkle trees have other disadvantages as we discussed before. Then we have vector commitments from polynomial commitments such as our ASVC scheme, which have constant sized proofs. Now constant sized proofs immediately implies that if something changes in the vector, you have to do order and work to update all constant sized proofs. Whereas Merkle trees, because they have log sized proofs that intersect within a tree, it's much easier to update all proofs in log n time. So an open problem that Vitalik uh, Buterin actually pointed out on Earth Research, I think in a post called an ideal vector commitment scheme, is a vector commitment scheme that must inherently have non-constant sized proofs, that proofs are that such proofs are aggregatable, and the data structure that defining the proofs potentially in a tree-like fashion is updatable efficiently so that all proofs can be updated in, say, logarithmic time. And um, this is something we're working towards as well, independently. This leads into a question that that I had, which was about like the open problems, but also like what are the challenges in actually building this thing? Like, would you say that the state of the research is such that there is a solution? Or would you say that we're talking like 30% in, there's still like quite a road before stateless validation can be implemented? Uh, my hunch is that we're in a state where there's enough room to innovate more on the authenticated data structure side to help inform the design of the stateless validation system. And we could start prototyping some stateless validations designs, oh, including cool. the consensus layer now with the work we have, but I think there's more room for improvement. So for example, the open problem that I highlighted earlier. And in principle, maybe it's not necessary to solve this open problem. Maybe computing all in proofs periodically with our in this construction that has constant size proof is fast enough if you do it periodically rather than all the time. Uh, but that yet remains to be explored in future work. So yeah, my hunch is that uh, we have more room to innovate before we finalize the design. I, and that's informed also by some of the things we're working on yet that are yet to be revealed, where we're coming up with ways to incentivize some actors in a stateless system, uh, which changes things a little bit. One of the things I think we didn't quite cover yet on this show and in these questions, though, was say stateless validation is at a state where it can be implemented. What does that actually mean for the users of that system? Like what changes? We talked about size. We talked about like, what would that mean? Ah, what does that enable? I love this, uh, I love this question. <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't said it yet. <laughs> yeah, so in some sense, it's kind of subtle, I think, what it means. So one, one implication of stateless validation that we touched upon earlier is that it immediately implies a thin client for your thin devices like your mobile phone. Like a small, not heavy, something that a lot of very unpowerful devices could still run. Yes. And that's already the case in cryptocurrencies like Ethereum and Bitcoin, but the current thin clients running on mobile phones for these cryptocurrencies make some trust assumptions. And users are not aware of that. They probably just trust and you know they assume everything works. So if you have stateless validation, that allows you to come up with thin clients for your mobile phone that don't require these trust assumptions anymore or require less of them because you could actually validate yourself on the mobile phone yeah. if you keep up with all transactions in the system. Now, whether you want to do that and, and waste all of your mobile phone <laughs> precious data remains to be seen. But maybe mobile phone isn't the right example, but maybe something like a, like a laptop, something smaller. Right. But this is, I think that's kind of the, the, the yeah. hope with this, right? It's the idea that a, validate, a validator could, you wouldn't need certain kinds of powerful machines. You wouldn't need, although actually, wait, validators never need powerful machines now that I think about it. Well, it depends on which chain you, you're talking about. 
mean, it's not like miners. They don't need mining power. Yeah. <laughs> not, not to that degree. But it still needs to be a fast machine with a fast hard drive and like a good modern CPU and all. Because you still have the same essential problem as mining in that you have to make a base assumption of, of some architecture that your blockchain will run well on. Because if someone comes in and is like way below that, they can't produce or they can't even execute a block within the block time, then obviously that doesn't work. Like you have a a sort of lower bound on the hardware requirements. And this can either allow you to lower that lower bound or it can allow you to scale more. So I think to like the simple answer, like in an ideal world, what this gives us is more security and better scaling. And so it's a better system to use in some ways, either a better UX or more transactions per second or what have you. Would it also allow more participants to be validators? Like, is was it, is that part of that idea yes. that it opens up? That's actually what I wanted to, to touch upon. Uh, so I'm glad you and Frederick brought this up. So in 2016 or 17, I used to run a Bitcoin node in my office at MIT for fun, for no reason whatsoever, just for fun. I just thought it would be cool to keep the system up and running. And after a while, I just couldn't do that. Like, I didn't have enough storage, uh, and I couldn't do that anymore. And even now, like, if I wanted to do that for a cryptocurrency like Ethereum, eh, I don't have the space to spare, to be honest. And I don't want my SSD doing all of these writes and reads and messing up my hard disk lifetime. So what actually kind of excites me most about stateless validation is, well, first, there's the sharded consensus. But second is that it really is a distributed system. So a distributed system distributes computation, but also storage. And if you think of the current nature of Ethereum and Bitcoin, they are distributed in some sense, but not in the full sense of the word. They do not distribute the storage. And stateless validation is a first step towards that. It does have caveats. You need proof-serving nodes, but those proof-serving nodes can also be distributed. They can each maintain a part of the proofs. You need somebody to store the transaction history, but even that can be perfectly distributed. So now you have kind of the holy grail, a distributed system. And then if you imagine a future where these cryptocurrencies are really secure, what's the number one thing you want? You want validators, as many validators as you Mm -hmm. can get. How do you get as many validators as you can get? You lower the barrier to entry so everybody can do it for fun, like I was doing it in 2017. And stateless validation enables that. So I think for me, that's the most exciting thing because it's an exploration of a of an ideal distributed system. And you know, perhaps it's not there yet. I mean, most certainly it's not there yet in terms of the research. But it's it's such an exciting vision and it's it's hard to it's hard to not work on it for me. What is interesting is, that, I mean, and I don't think we have time in this episode to cover it, but it is what are the implications of having that many validators? We don't know yet. Or what would it mean to make it so, make the barrier to entry so low? Mm. What potential dangers could that have? But I also think that, like, in the moment, just getting to that place sounds like a very exciting goal. For security, it should only increase security to have more validators. Your adversary has to compromise more nodes. For throughput, if you don't shard, more validators usually slow you down. But if you shard and you have more validators, now you can have smaller shards, which should increase throughput. So it seems like the implications are mostly positive, but you're right. Who knows what subtleties are there? Yeah, there's one subtlety. And if you lower the barrier, you get validators that are less reliable. Mm -hmm. So like in in a high requirement system, you can basically guarantee that they're always online because there's Mm -hmm. such a high barrier to entry. If it's a super low barrier to entry, I'm going to run it on my laptop and I'm, you know, I'm not validating when I'm shutting it down. And what does that mean? Right. So you get churn. You could get more churn as a result. Exactly. Yeah, I like that point. That's a really good point. It sounds like there's still a lot of work and research kind of being done. Where should people go if they're curious about this? Maybe if they actually want to start getting into this research. There's actually the academic work on stateless validation is just beginning to appear. So I'm going to send you a list of, I want to say, 13 papers or so that tackle this problem in one way or another. And I think that would be a good starting point for folks to see how academics look at the problem, while keeping in mind that academics have their own limited vision into things. And then there's other resources online. So for example, I think one paper that points to these resources is the EDRAX paper by Chepurnoi, Papamantu, and Jung. And it points to to some websites that started talking about stateless validation as early as 2011, I want to say. 
so this topic has been discussed in the Bitcoin and Ethereum community much earlier than in the academic community, and those resources are very important. Also, ETH research is a good good resource, and I think I am more also going to send you three links to ETH research, and uh, of course, most importantly, my own blog. You know, it's the most important resource about this. <laughs> there are or uh, I think people should also check out. I don't know if I like. I don't remember what was the first study club you did. The aggregatable subvector commitments for stateless cryptocurrencies. So then both of them are related. So so I think people should also check out two study clubs, ZK study clubs you did actually with with us, with me, um, that's on, on the YouTube channel. So those are videos that I'll also add in the show notes. I'm going to add all of the links that you just shared. I think there's a lot of work here, a lot of resources for people. So do check out the show notes. Yeah. So thank you so much, Aline. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been super fun. Uh, and it's such a great opportunity for me to think more about these problems. So I've, I've, I've really loved it. And uh, you guys have really insightful questions. So I really appreciate it. It's been very useful for me too. Cool. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.